You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. People, what, were the, what was the, the spread on the UVA-UMBC game? What was it? 20.5. Man, somebody had a really good time in Baltimore this weekend. Good grief. Even a little bit. 3%? Bet on you. Somebody, uh, their 7-year-old filled out their bracket and had UMBC beating UVA and they shame the child, and now they're like, what do you know that I don't know? Um, so. Oh, gosh. How depressing. It really is. No, it's not. Just a game. Well, at UVA, there's always women's field hockey. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord. Uh, we do pray that we would keep things in perspective, and uh, especially in the world in which we live in. Uh, where uh, sports are certainly an idol, uh, Lord, that you would become uh, more believable and more beautiful uh, than we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, we're going to start a little bit early. Uh, we're talking about the sacraments. It's pretty, there you go, my sermon notes. Uh, it's pretty rough. Uh, it could be rough going. Uh, but let's, um, you have the articles there in front of you uh, that we're going to talk about. And I really just want to look at uh, the first one, the second goes hand in hand with it, uh, but I'm going to read the first one because I know how annoying it is when you're listening uh, on a podcast and you don't have this in front, so let me read it. Uh, Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's good will towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Those five commonly called sacraments, that is to say, confirmation, penance, orders, matrimony, and extreme unction, are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel, being such as have grown partly of the corrupt following of the apostles, partly as states of life allowed in the scriptures, but yet have not like nature of sacraments with baptism and the Lord's Supper, but that they have not any visible sign or ceremony ordained of God. The sacraments were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or to be carried about, but that we should duly use them, and in such only as worthily receive the same. They have a wholesome effect or operation, but they that receive them unworthily purchase to themselves damnation, as St. Paul saith. Okay. Thus saith the Lord. Okay, let's uh, talk about uh, sacraments. Um, One of the problems that we have with sacraments is that the word is not in the Bible anywhere, uh, or at least the word that we now use is sacrament. Uh, And so we're going to talk about uh, the use uh, of that word. So much of our conversation about sacraments, uh, for the worse, is around extra-biblical conversations. And I would imagine that if we were all to plumb the depths of our own theology concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper, most of our strongly held convictions, uh, even our rightly held convictions, uh, probably are not rooted in the Bible. Uh, I wonder if you were to actually sit down with pen and paper and to say, here's what I believe about baptism, here's what I believe about Holy Communion, and then you were to let it sit for a day, Come back and visit it with your Bible and then actually go through and affirm all of your beliefs with what the Bible says. Uh, Because the problem is, one, um, the Bible is probably silent about it, which again doesn't mean that what you've said is wrong. uh, But then again, uh, there are also those things that maybe we believe that the Bible says that's not true uh, about it. And when we talk about the sacraments, especially in liturgical circles, in liturgical traditions like ours, it's littered with landmines. Uh, This is is the conversation that got Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer, and innumerable others burned at the stake or uh, executed during the Reformation. Uh, This is 
what would get you in trouble uh, during the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, this is what uh, would get you in trouble uh, for uh, various and sundry reasons. And it, and it goes both ways. Uh, after the Reformation, uh, Roman Catholicism was banned in England, uh, bec mostly because of political reasons. Uh, you may remember that Elizabeth I was excommunicated by the Pope, which meant that you could kill the queen and not go to hell for it. It was not considered a mortal sin, and it was done for political reasons. So that opened up the door for someone to assassinate the Queen of England, uh, allowing, hopefully, a Roman Catholic heir uh, to come into the throne. And so as a matter of politics, Elizabeth said, everybody out, uh, and threw all the Roman Catholics out. There were still Roman Catholic families, obviously, in England and uh, especially in Scotland believe it or not, uh, and, and Ireland, oh, uh, total hard to be with you. Uh, that's a whole other story. And, um, uh, but in England, because it was illegal, you might go to an old, ancient country estate, and you'll find these little cubby holes uh, that either were just a little room uh, under floorboards or in a wall or actually a whole entire passageway that led out of the house. Those are called priest holes, right? Because if you had the Roman Catholic priest there, and the authorities showed up, throw the priest in the hole, right? Hide him uh, until, um, until uh, the authorities uh, were gone. Uh, and so that was the, the nature of it. So England really went through a long period of time where they really didn't talk about the sacraments, and it was kind of a given that there was a, a Protestant understanding of the sacraments, which we're going to get to, until the mid-19th century where the conversation was reignited by a thing called the Oxford Movement. And uh, the Church of England as the established church really wasn't equipped to deal with the conversation because they had taken for granted what they believed about the sacraments. And it really became Liberty Hall uh, in the Church of England. Uh, and that influenced Amer the American church to a significant degree. And that is why we are where we are today. And while we're all over the place. And um, I would imagine... Actually, I can say this with some authority. Uh, most clergy don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Uh, they just don't want to talk about it. And, and that's to our great detriment, especially when something so significant is on the line as, as our souls. So, um, so let's, uh, with that uh, cheerful introduction, uh, let's see how we might get burned at the stake. Well, the doctrine of sacraments is closely connected with and really dependent on the doctrine of the church, which we talked about last week. In the fullest sense of the term, the church means a community of those who are united to Christ, uh, but the word is also used of all those who profess this union, and the sacraments are connected with this visible association of Christ's professing followers. Uh, I didn't talk about two ways in which I talked about the church being uh, the body of the faithful gathered. Uh, I talked about the church being the bride of Christ. Uh, I've talked at length at other times about the church being the family of God. In fact, that's a big, that's probably the most prevalent image that the Bible uses is God's people being a family. Um, but I also um, uh, didn't talk about the church. I talked about uh, the church uh, being um, uh, the body uh, as well. Uh, but there are other ways in which the Bible talks about the church that I didn't get to. Uh, but suffice it to say, uh, the church uh, that we have are those who are united to Christ. Right? That's, that's the church. And the church came into existence through the word preached and received by faith. And then followed the sacraments as visible expressions of membership in the church of those who had received the word. And at the same time, as God's assurance to us and pledges of the fulfillment of the promises proclaimed in the Word. So the Word is central and supreme and calls for faith. And the sacraments are always associated with the Word and require faith to be believed. So that's why in our tradition, the minister is always the minister of the Word and sacraments. You might hear me say that, that I was ordained a minister of Word and sacraments. Uh, and this is the relative position of the two and is never reversed. There is nothing in the word which is not implied and expressed in the sacraments and nothing in the sacraments which is not interpreted and explained in the word. The word may act apart from the sacraments, 
but the sacraments never apart from the Word. The Word makes Christians through faith. The sacraments make the church through fellowship. The Word proclaims Christ to the ear, and the sacraments proclaim Christ to the eye. And so that is um, one of the ways in which... um, Where are my notes? Uh, That is why I said, uh, I think two weeks ago, that in our tradition... uh, you can have a service where there's just a sermon preached. We're not allowed to have services where there's just baptism or just communion. You have to have a sermon with it. And if somebody, you may have been to something where, where that's happened, they're uh, breaking the rules. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, they were, and not only are they breaking the rules, they're, ba- they're breaking the biblical idea of what a sacrament uh, is. Um, okay, so moving on. Uh, So we need to remember to keep the sacraments in the position assigned to them in the Bible. Uh, The Word of God naturally comes first as embodying God's revelation to us, which those of us who believe are to respond to. And we approach uh, this supreme and all-inclusive means of grace uh, because it's the approach of God to the soul and the person of Jesus Christ. And everything else is subject to it because it necessarily finds its warrant in the divine promise and assurance. I'm going to unpack all this. So whether we think of prayer or of the sacraments, we know that it's only because the Word of God has given us a revelation that we are able to believe in the efficacy of those ways to approach God. So to give you an Old Testament example, in the Old Testament, God's Word to Abraham, right, that he, the promises that God made to Abraham, was followed by the covenant of circumcision, Right? And God's word to Israel by the covenant of the Passover. Right? So when God's word comes in the Bible, it's also, it, also, it often comes with a covenant. Can anybody else think of another way in which God made a promise and then it was demonstrated visibly? Noah and the ark, right? The rainbow. So it's not just, I mean, I'm not trying to get graphic here, but... Um, uh, circumcision is, is an extreme thing. Uh, we forget. I don't know if you saw it. There was an article this week that Iceland wants to outlaw circumcision, which um, I'm not sure how much of a Jewish population Iceland has, but uh, they're going to have to defy the law, uh, I, I suppose. Um, it's, it's such an idiotic thing. That, I mean, what can you say bad about Iceland? They've got a good airline, you know, they were really smart, and they named their country Iceland and the bad, company, the bad country Greenland. Right? Do you know this? So the people are like, oh, Iceland, don't want to go there. I'll go to Greenland, and Greenland stinks, right? Uh, so, um, yeah, what can you say about Iceland? Uh, freedom, freedom, food. So, um, but being circumcised is, is no, um, is a big deal, and, uh, and is in a way that the Jewish people, men, uh, were visibly identified, and so you actually have an incident in the Old Testament where, uh, where to find out if they really if they're Jews, that's what would happen. Uh, they said, "Okay, we're going to uncover you in order to find out the real truth uh, of the matter." And uh, in the same way that God's saying, "You put the blood on the the door, uh, I'm going to pass over." And since then. Uh, the angel of death doesn't come and visit them all the time, uh, but the Jewish people have their Passover feast. Why? As a tangible and visible reminder. I mean, they could still remember the Passover by reading the passage from the Bible. They could remember their covenant to, that God made with Abraham. Uh, they could remember the covenant that God made with Noah, uh, but God has given them visible and often tangible signs to remind them of his covenant word. Uh, but the thing about it is, is standing alone they really don't speak for themselves. I mean, think about the rainbow in our culture. My kids see a rainbow, especially this weekend, and they're like, there's a little man at the end of it, and he's got a pot of gold. We need to get after it. Right? A a rainbow in and of itself doesn't mean anything. You can even have a scientific explanation, the way the sun is is going through the uh, moisture in the atmosphere. Uh, There are plenty of explanations for uh, a rainbow, but you add the covenant promise of God to it, and all of a sudden the rainbow means something completely different, doesn't it? And so the word, divorced from the thing, actually uh, causes the, the thing to have no meaning 
uh, whatsoever. And so the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper um, are wrapped up in God's faithfulness to his promises and also our faith in him. Because Christianity is a religion of promise. The word is the instrument of the promise and the sacraments are the ratification. I know I'm reading a lot here because I want to be very clear about what it is that I'm saying. So sacraments are at once, these are what sacraments are. One, expressions and act of what the gospel is intended to be. Two, covenant rights in relation to God's promises. Three, expressions in visible form of our faith in God. Baptism implying the faith that accepts and the Lord's Supper, the faith that abides. And fourthly, uh, means of an opportunity for the expression of fellowship in the form between believers in Christ. Baptism being the sacrament of initiation into the church and the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of continuation uh, therein. Okay. So that is, uh, that's the overview of what I'm going to talk about. Now let's talk about it. Let's go back. Um, uh, well, let me read a couple quotes just so you know that I'm not talking out of school. Uh, on the sacraments, uh, the early church fathers dealt with this a lot. John Chrysostom said this, In order to understand the mysteries, by these he meant baptism and communion, we must study them with the intellectual eye, attending to what the Lord promised rather than what sense perceives. Right? So when we come to the table, John Chrysostom says, we need to attend to the, what the Lord promised or at the font rather than what the sense perceives. Augustine said it, for Augustine, the operative factor seems to have been the candidate's belief in the Trinity as expressed in his answers to the threefold baptismal interrogations. Remember, if you've ever seen a baptism, we have three affirmations and three renunciations. Augustine says, take away the word... And what is the water but water? When the word is added to the element, it becomes a sacrament. Right? So if, um, if I just, you know, there's a big difference between me bathing my children at night and actually baptizing them, isn't there? Right? Same water, uh, in some ways the same, the same means. In fact, every time I bathe my children, which thankfully I'm, I'm at the point where they can bathe themselves, all, although not well, um, you know, kids get to that age and you're like, you need a bath right now. Um, uh, but every time I, you know, you get those big stadium cups, which are great, and, um, and they're mouthing off and you just baptize them with the stadium cup. Um, and it does. In fact, um, uh, our youngest, about a year ago, asked me why I kept baptizing her. And she's not off the mark, right? She's not off the mark. But... Um, but this article uh, is actually uh, or an edited version of 42 articles that were written in 1553 by Cranmer uh, himself. And, uh, and I'll get to the uh, article from 1553 in a little bit. But where does the word sacrament come from? Not in the Bible, as I said. Uh, the Greek word uh, from which it comes is mysterion. Uh, mysterion. Uh, the Latin word given by the translators, so when the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin, they translated it as sacramentum. Uh, so Ephesians 5.32, just trying to find a good example here. Ephesians 5.32 says this. Uh, this mystery, he's talking about, this is where Paul's talking about marriage. This mystery, this mysterion, this sacramentum is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Now, um, so here it was translated as a great mystery, a magnum sacramentum. But this is actually an, uh, an, an inaccurate representation, representation of the Greek word, which is never applied to an external rite. So when the Bible talks about circumcision or the Passover supper or even baptism or the Lord's Supper, it's never referred to as a mysterion, it's never referred to as sacramentum unless the translators did it. When the New Testament uses the word mysterion, it means something that was once secret but is now revealed. It does not mean mysteriousness. The English word mysteries in connection with Holy Communion has nothing to do with the Greek word but is equivalent to the word 
symbols. In fact, the word in the Roman world in which the New Testament was written, this word mysterion was used of Roman soldiers who would take an oath to the emperor and the empire. They take an oath, a pledge. They commit themselves. Uh, actually, there's even older use. It's a legal term, mysterion is. And the legal term, or and even sacramentum, was when you would go to court with somebody, both the plaintiff and the defendant would put the money in the pot, and whoever, so whoever lost, lost the money, and whoever won the case went home with all the money. That money that was put in there was the sacramentum. Right? So it's a, it's a, I'm in, right? I'm, I'm vested in the situation. Uh, I'm a soldier. I've made an oath. Uh, that's where the word comes from, and that's what the authors of the New Testament were trying to uh, convey. This is why Pliny, uh, the historian, which is actually worth reading if you don't get a chance to read Pliny uh, often, uh, when he wrote to the emperor Trajan, he said, he said, speaking of Christians, quote, Christians binding themselves with a sacramentum not to commit any crime or do any wrong. So even then, Christians would use the word sacramentum uh, as an oath, right? A pledge, a promise. By the time we arrive at the Middle Ages, Peter Lombard, who was a great theologian of the Middle Ages, uh, gives us the definition that most of us have been taught regarding the sacraments, that they are, quote, visible forms of an invisible grace. Outward and visible forms of an inward and invisible grace. And Peter Lombard would be the first person to say that the number of sacraments is seven. As the article alludes to, those sacraments were baptism, confirmation, confession, holy communion, ordination, marriage, and basically last rites. But then, and certainly thereafter, there was still a distinction made by most theologians in the Catholic tradition between baptism and the Lord's Supper and the other five. They, they understood the special nature of those two. And at the Reformation, the Protestants saw three requirements for a sacrament. One, a visible sign. Two, an invisible grace. And then thirdly, you've heard the language already, ordained by Christ himself. Something that ordained Christ by himself. Just to give you an example as to why the others wouldn't qualify as a sacrament, Although they have a like nature of a sacrament, we're going to talk about that, about marriage, but just to use marriage as an example, um, sacraments are for who? Who should, who should receive baptism and who should receive communion? What's the criteria? Faith, belief, right? So at a minimum, uh, Christians, right? Now, I'm not going to get re- go back to our, my class on election to talk about this because it's, it's always lurking in the background and has an overriding uh, influence on the articles. Uh, but that's why when we bring a child to the font, at least one of the parents has to be a professing Christian, and the godparents need to be Christians. Right? We don't just willy-nilly baptize everybody. Right? There, are, there are children who are part of the covenant community being born into to, uh, a Christian family, and there's no reason for us to disbelieve God's promises that he's going to work in their lives and bring them to faith in him. And uh, for communion, uh, now some churches do this. Anybody, whoever you are, where you are on your faith walk, come forward and receive communion. Uh, I know of at least a couple churches that have gone so far is to serve communion to service animals, uh, thinking that that's the charitable and Christian thing to do. Um, and um, in, in our day and age, if you've been on an airplane recently, everything's a service animal. In fact, Delta once had to encounter a service turkey. Uh, someone, uh, no joke, someone brought a turkey on board a Delta flight uh, saying that it was their service uh, animal. Uh, I suppose if they were going to go down on a desert island, it would be of a great service uh, to them. But... Um, Anyhow, um, uh, and actually, I, I think that there's probably less of a blasphemy of giving communion to a dog that is helping a blind person than giving communion to someone who doesn't believe. Because it really doesn't make any difference with the dog, quite frankly. 
But spiritually, uh, what, does the, what does the article say and what does this echo in Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Uh, but they that receive it unworthily, that is unbelieving, purchase to themselves damnation. And so actually, rather than being nice and open and friendly, you're spiritually abusing somebody and actually leading them toward destruction. If you're encouraging someone who doesn't put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to, um, if you're encouraging them to come forward uh, and uh, receive. And so uh, when we look at ma- something like marriage, um, are only Christians allowed to be married, biblically speaking? No. No, marriage is an ordinance of creation. Right? That's why Christians ought not to get bent. I mean, when's the last time you heard a Christian say, you know, Hindus, they shouldn't be able to get married. Atheist. Uh, if anything, what are the, the Christian teaching is marriage is really good. Whether you, believe in, whether you believe in Jesus or not, people should get married and people should have children. Right? That, that's a really good thing for the world in which we live in. And so, uh, in the same way, that's one of the reasons why marriage is not necessarily counted uh, as uh, a sacrament uh, or even uh, something uh, like ordination. Because I think the, res- the Reformers would have said and read it in the Bible uh, that the sacraments really are for all Christians, right? They're, they're for believers. Uh, and so uh, the fact of the matter is, is not everybody uh, should be ordained, right? That, that's a very select view. And if you have a really, really uh, high view of the sacraments, it gives way to this crazy understanding that priests are somehow more holier than y'all because we've received an extra sacrament that you haven't. And that's not... Come live with me for a day, right? And you'll find, be with me on Saturday night when, I mean, Friday night when UVA was playing. Uh, that was not a holy moment. Uh, and so understand, is sort of the inflation, uh, that this notion that some people are closer to God uh, is, is not biblical. And I mean, that's hard for us to understand because we do think of people like Mother Teresa, really close to the throne of God. And then Uncle Bill, who was, I think, a Christian, right? He seemed to be a Christian, but was a really bad uncle and just was really disruptive in our family. So Mother Teresa is way over here, and Uncle Bill, like, he's in the rafters with Benat. I can see Jesus. He's he's like a little ant. I can see him down there. And, of course, that's not the way that it works at all. Uncle Bill is just as close to the face of the Lord Jesus in heaven surrounding the throne of God than Mother Teresa is. Right? Why? Because we're perfected in heaven. Right? There's no more sin. And there's not, like, gradations of sin. Like, well, Mother Teresa, she was less sinful than Uncle Bill. It's a little bit like saying, well, this meal has a little bit of botulism in it. Not a lot. (laughs) Not a lot. Just a little bit. So you might be okay. Right? How much botulism is too much? Any botulism is too much. Right? Ask Chi-Chi's. Right? How much botulism is too much? So, David, were you going to say something? Right. So there it is. The one that went down from the temple justified. The man who said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, rather than the self-righteous tax collector. Say it time and time again. In fact, heaven is populated with sinners. Hell is populated with the self-righteous. Right? If someone thinks that they're going to get into heaven on their own, Guess what? They're going to get what they want in the sense that they'll be judged on their own merit. They're going to get what they want in the end. So, uh, and so uh, the sacraments, uh, no matter uh, where you are, now I do want to stop here and, and just say a word about that because the admonitions and the exhortation before the service of Holy Communion. If you can get your hands on an old prayer book, and by old, 1928 or earlier, There are two exhortations that the priest is supposed to read before receiving Holy Communion. One is to warn people against coming forward who probably ought not to come forward, whether they're normally and they're in some kind of sin. Now, communion surely is for sinners, uh, but if there's somebody who is in a sin that's causing problems in the whole body, you remember the illustration I used uh, of the parishioners in Beaufort who were suing one another, and didn't want to come to the table together, so they went to opposite rails, that's who that's for. Or even the person who their sin might not be outwardly, and this has been me before, um, where I know that I'm not right with a brother or a sister, 
and I would be making a mockery of the table to come forward. Right? That's, that's, you need to think about it before because what we're not just, this is not just bread and wine we're talking about. We're actually talking about uh, coming forward and spiritually feeding on the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, this is, this is no small thing. And it's also a representative holy communion of us coming together as the body. So that's one. The other exhortation is you should really come to communion. <laughs> uh, even though you're in your pew and thinking that you're on the outs with your brother and sister, don't let that simmer. Don't let that fester. Go and take care of that because it's a great blessing that you're missing out on and even a grave sin for you to abstain from the Lord's table uh, when it's for you. Uh, there's the great uh, story of, um, of the Church of Scotland minister, uh, and it used to be in England, too, that a whole congregation would gather around a table. That's now fi- not feasible. We couldn't do that now, which is why the tables have been moved to where they are, uh, and we have a rail. But um, while they were passing uh, the bread around, he noticed that there was an elderly lady that let the bread pass by her, and she just looked so downcast. And when the cup came around, it came to her. He stepped up, moved from a spot, grabbed the chalice, and he said to the woman in the Scottish, take it, woman, it's for sinners. Right? That's the exhortation. It's for you, sinner. It's for you. So if you read them side by side, you're like, well, it contradicts one another. In a sense, it does. But that's up to the individual, and it was up to the minister to discern uh, which one uh, to read. And so... Um, these two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, both ordained of Christ, obviously the uh, Lord's Supper in the upper room, and then the perpetual memory of him. Uh, we see evidence of that in the Corinthian church when Paul says, this is how you do it. Uh, and then, of course, uh, baptism, the Lord uh, in his great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity. And we saw that in the regular activity of, uh, of the apostles and even the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup and the regular activity of, uh, of the apostles. So things that were ordained uh, of Christ. And this is what Cranmer said about the nature of the sacraments. For as the word of God preached, putteth Christ into our ears. So likewise, these elements of water, bread, and wine, joined to God's word, do after a sacramental manner put Christ into our eyes, mouths, hands, and all our senses, right? Echoing what I said before, that where the preached word is the audible word, communion and baptism are the visible word, right? It's, it's gospel reenactment happening uh, before our eyes. And water and bread and wine, these sacraments are badges and tokens of Christian profession and sure witnesses of grace. Now, what does that mean? Because this is where we get heavy going. Now, this is where marriage is actually a really good example uh, to use, and I think a striking parallel. Okay. What is this that I'm holding? Okay, I've heard some people say it's a ring. It's a wedding ring, right? Um, yes, uh, it's, it's both of those things. Uh, but what is a wedding band? It's a what? It's a symbol, it's a sign, it's a covenant, outward visible sign of something more significant. Anybody else? I think we paid $75 for this. Uh, and it's so funny, like men are like, whatever the cheapest one is, whatever. Um, and isn't it funny, you can always tell who the newly married man is because he's doing, he's fiddling with it. And he's kind of like, it burns, just kidding. Uh, he's just fiddling with it. But in a sense, I, I want to piggyback on that. Um, but it's... Being married to somebody is not the same as this, right? Being married, what, what makes the marriage a marriage? Right? You have two people standing before the minister. They exchange vows, and then in response to the exchange of those vows, they exchange rings with one another, and then they're declared husband and wife. This means nothing apart from those vows. Right? I mean, I, I knew a guy who, uh, whose uh, grandfather uh, 
died uh, as, uh, as a young man, and then his dad died as a young man. And so he would wear his father's wedding band and his grandfather's wedding band uh, as a reminder. He wore it on, on his right hand, uh, but as a reminder. It's, it's still a wedding band, but let's just say even beyond something like that. Let's say I wasn't married, but I wore this. Does that make me married? But I'm not married apart from Lauren. Right? I need Lauren to be married. Uh, although I did read that article several years ago. Remember the woman who married herself? Right? Be careful what you ask for. Um, uh, but I need Lauren, and I need the words. Right? I need the, the, the words are really important uh, to uh, the marriage. So they're essential to the marriage service. In fact, I could do without the ring, and I'm still, I'm still married. In fact, in uh, many places in the United States, and especially in Europe, the man doesn't wear a ring. Right? The old prayer book actually didn't even think that they finally added in something, well, maybe a man will wear a ring. Uh, it was actually assumed that the man wouldn't wear a ring. And I'm glad that we do wear rings, uh, because for me, uh, it says to me, what? I'm married to Lauren. But it also says to the world what? I'm married to Lauren. Think back to when you were in your early 20s and on the prowl. What's the first thing you did when you saw somebody you were attracted to? You checked out their left hand, right? And let me just say, if you're, not, uh, if you're single right now, an engagement ring means nothing, by the way. Just, so if you're a single guy, look into that. So, but if there's a wedding band... Uh, if there's a wedding band, uh, that means something, right? What does that mean? I belong to somebody else, exclusively for life. Belong to Lauren. Lauren belongs to me. So in the same way, when it comes to the sacraments, water's just water, bread's just bread, wine's just wine, but you add the word to it in the relationship that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it means something totally different. I mean, technically, you know, people could serve port wine and, and bread uh, at a cocktail party, right? They, they could do that. Uh, but you add the intention, the meaning, the purpose, the relationship, the word to it, and it means something altogether different. And so for us, uh, Holy Communion and baptism are like a wedding band uh, to us. Uh, apart from the Word, just a ring. Uh, but the Word gives it its meaning. And so when we come as believers, and of course that's the big thing, is that when we come as believers, uh, we meet the Lord Jesus Christ at the font and in the bread and the wine. And that's why we say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And what we mean by that is the body that was once and for all crucified on the cross. That's the body we're talking about. But the bread reminds us of that. And then uh, feed upon him in thy heart by faith and with thanksgiving. So the feeding is a spiritual feeding. We don't eat Jesus with our mouths, we feed upon him in our hearts. That's what we do. We feed upon in him in our hearts. Otherwise, uh, we would be in a whole uh, heap uh, of trouble. Uh, I used my uh, friend from Beaufort with uh, jaw cancer, had his jaw wired shut, and we still have people, we have somebody uh, in our congregation who, it's not, um, they're not glutards. Uh, what's the real significant one? Celiac. Uh, celiac. Um, no offense to you if you're glucose intolerant, uh, but somebody in our congregation has, cel has celiac disease and they cannot eat the bread without doing real damage to themselves. And so when they come forward, and in fact they don't even take the cup either, when they come forward and don't receive the bread and the cup and they leave the rail, have they communed? Have they eaten and drank of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. And so I stop in front of them and I say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, uh, 
preserve uh, the body and soul into everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed upon him in thy heart by faith. All right. That's, and the person does. Uh, and the person does. And so when it comes to the spiritual presence, he's there because we're gathered there. That Christ's presence is actually manifested objectively in us. In us. Right? Not because you have a pastor at the table. In fact, this is one of the strange, crazy disconnects that we have in the Christian church. Who can baptize? Anybody. Now, I'm not even talking biblically. I'm talking about an Anglicanism. Anybody can baptize. Anybody can baptize. Now, for the sake of discipline, we, we typically don't. So we say, well, priests and deacons can baptize in a corporate service. But can deacons do Holy Communion? Why? Right. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to say somebody can baptize someone, but they can't do Holy Communion, as if somehow that sacrament is bigger and better than all. It's different, certainly. Uh, but the point now, everyone's going to go home and get... You can, you can actually buy the bread online, um, uh, which is where we get it. Uh, but, and you're all Episcopalian, so you already have port uh, at home. Uh, and I'm not recommending that you go home and you, you do that. Uh, but what I am saying is that it's not the person standing at the table that makes Jesus present. It's the faith of the believer coming forward, the ransomed sinner who comes forward in faith to receive the Lord Jesus Christ that makes him present. And that's as real as it's ever going to get. Right? He really is present uh, when we come to the table. He really is present uh, when we come to uh, the font. And so uh, that's why uh, we put such a great emphasis on uh, the sacraments uh, in our tradition uh, they are uh, a big deal, uh, and uh, they are a sure means uh, of grace uh, to us, but of course coupled with the word. Questions, comments, concerns? As a cradle Episcopalian, I'd always thought that we believed in transubstantiation, and then I found out in our small group that we don't. I guess I was uh, missed something that Harry Pritchett said in uh, our communion class way back. <clears throat> but I, I think of the words of Flannery O'Connor. He said, if, uh, if the bread and wine don't become the body and blood, then to, then to hell with it. Uh, right. So anyway, I uh, thought maybe you could say something about the transubstantiation. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, to hell easy, with it. easy question. Yeah. Um, so this is one place where we can go to the Bible. This is one place where we can go to the Bible for it. Um, so there's, no, there's nothing in, in the Bible that tells us that, that it is transubstantiated. A lot of people will point to John's gospel where uh, Jesus says, he who eats of my uh, flesh and drinks of my blood uh, and all that. Um, but the problem with that is if, if you read, if you continue to read it, um, this is uh, Jesus, I mean John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Uh, moving on, moving on, moving on. Um, uh, I am the bread that came down uh, from heaven. Uh, and truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in heaven in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about feeding on Christ spiritually. Because if we take this literally, as Jesus is talking about the bread, then that means that anybody who eats the bread in Holy Communion becomes a Christian. And if that's the case, right, that's what it says. Uh, anybody who eats this bread, he will live forever. I ought to spend all of my days stuffing the bread down people's throats, whether they like it or not. Uh, the other thing, too, is that it gets away from, if it really does become Jesus on the table, then it undermines the work of Christ on Calvary. 
it means that that wasn't enough, that we have to reenact it. So that's why when uh, a Roman Catholic is ordained, they're handed a patent and chalice and said, uh, you've now been given authority to, to, to sacrifice for the living and the dead. So um, I don't think that there's biblical warrant for it. The, the reformers certainly didn't. That's what they were burned over. Uh, but uh, I think that above all, it gives people the impression uh, that, that the sacrament is what matters rather than the one who died to make the sacrament possible, which is what matters. The focus is on Jesus, not on the elements. So if you listen real closely in our communion service, you'll hear Cranmer and us going out of our way, who made their one oblation, who made their one oblation, a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Right? So this is, that was sufficient. This is simply a reminder to us, and it is Jesus coming to us in the form of bread and wine, uh, but it's not a reenactment of the cross. Coffee. In one of our recent training sessions for acolytes and altar guild members, the discussion came up about when do the elements actually become effective? Right. And I think uh, the, in the stuff, you, in the readings you gave us, which I actually did read, believe it or not, every word of them, uh, they thought that the, the sacrament becomes effective when it is received by a believing Christian. And I've, I've come to believe that that does, that does hold sway. If, if you believe in what you receive, then that does actually become, in a spiritual manner, right. the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right. If you go to the altar and you don't believe any of that, then it's just bread and wine and water. Right. And it is, it is not efficacious, as they say technically. So, although I, I too, am a cradle Episcopalian and a cradle Adventer, you know, and, and I've grown up in a number of traditions all of which, 90% of which I still respect and admire, and I, and I believe that many of the traditions that we have held in the past are worthwhile, whether they be technically, theologically sound or referred to in the Bible. We as, we as Episcopalians and long-lived long Episcopalians, most of us come to the altar with an understanding that we are in the presence of our Lord and Savior right. when we get there. And I worry that sometimes we put stumbling blocks mm. on both sides of the path. Yeah. So what ensures, so making sure that we don't, um, we don't belittle the sacrament uh, and, and make people believe something uh, that we don't, that people aren't pushed too far into believing, well, it, it doesn't make much of a difference. Um, well, what, what ensures God's presence amongst us? His promise, right? His promise. He promises where two or three are gathered together in his name. He's in the midst of them. He's, he's present in, the, uh, in his word. Uh, but, of course, in the same way that using what you said about Holy Communion coffee, that it's, that it's only made efficacious by the word coupled with the spirit that brings us to faith. So I think about, uh, you remember Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? Remember how that starts off? He's told to preach, and he preaches, and all the army comes together, sinews and all, but they're all still dead. And then remember what he's told to do is to preach and pray. Pray that the breath of God would go into them. And so... Preaching that is divorced from God's spirit creates a congregation with some of the best-looking dead people you'll ever want. But preaching coupled with the movement of God and the Holy Spirit that comes to us by prayer is dynamic and active and living. And so I think that the preaching of the Word, the Spirit moving through that, is God's presence amongst us. And then at the table, because of the word preached, is, a, is, is God's presence amongst us as well. I would be very careful, though, to say, to not try to isolate God and to say, he's more here than he is there. 
Because if we believe that God is more present in Holy Communion or baptism than he is in the preaching of his word or in our own services, that he's more present in Holy Communion than he is in morning prayer, we're in sin and that every prayer, every service we should have should be Holy Communion because it means that we're not allowing the fullness of God's presence to come amongst us. Now, um, and so that, that's one thing that one of the traditions that we've stood on is that know that God is just as much present in our midst in morning prayer as he is uh, in the service of Holy Communion. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not manifested differently. So for the people, and some of you may be uh, amongst them, who alternate 9 and 11 based on where communion is, I get that. Because for some of you, some of you are audible learners, some of you are visual learners, and, and if you feel like the grace of God is communicated, there's another word, communicated to you uh, more clearly through the preached word and the bread and the wine rather than just the sermon, praise God. Praise God. Uh, and then there are some amongst you who say, I could take communion quarterly, and I would be okay. Right? Nobody should belittle the other person, whatever the position they hold. Right? Because the fact is, is that they're still experiencing the communion of God, whether they're coming every single Sunday or whether they're coming once, once a quarter. And so I think that God's presence, uh, and that's hard, especially like in our church building, because it really does feel like you're coming up higher. You know, you're, you're coming into a... A holier, a holier space. And I told you one of our sections wouldn't even go behind the rail to dust the ledge because he was afraid that it would be Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, when, when, he, when he went out there. Which is not true because God is just as much God and just as present on that side uh, as he is on that side. So I would say you're absolutely right. I would say let's check, let's check the person who says, well, it's just bread and wine. Right? That would be biblically untrue. And I think we ought to check also the people who say, well, it's now literally Jesus' body and blood up at the table. Um, I think that needs to be checked as well. I'm not, all, I'm not saying, well, we need to be moderate. I think, again, that we need to be as biblical as we can possibly be. All right. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.